0: I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. We get to continue on in our series in 2 Peter this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible, um, if you haven't downloaded one on your phone, there is one around you somewhere, and we'd like to give you that one to use or to keep. Um, Just grab that one, use that one. Uh, What we want to do this morning is pick up where we left off last week, and so we are going to be in verse 12 of chapter 1. I invite you to find your place with me there. As you get there, I want you to think about something with me. Secession planning. Secession planning. Anyone know what secession planning is? Secession planning, um, I actually looked up to get the exact definition here, is the process for identifying and developing new leaders who can replace old leaders when they leave, retire, or die. All right, so the process of identifying, developing those who are going to replace the current leaders when they leave, retire, or die. So, secession planning is, is very common in the business world um, to make sure that the company, make sure that the mission of the company, make sure that what is going on in the company will continue after the, the leader, the current leadership is no longer here. And with anything that is meaningful, With any mission that is worth it, secession planning is important. Secession planning is important because we we must have a secession plan in order that whatever it is we're talking about continues on. And I want you to think about that with me in the context of our letter. The entire history of the world was waiting on one moment, was waiting, looking forward to the coming of a Messiah to the coming of Christ. I mean, think about it, since the garden, since Adam and Eve chose to sin, um, since that moment when God said in verse 15 of Genesis 3, talking to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From that moment, all of creation, all of creation was waiting for, looking for that one who would come. That Messiah, the one who would crush that serpent, who would crush sin. And then that moment came. Through the birth of Jesus, through that Virgin Mary in that manger, God comes down, comes down and dwells among us. All creation looked at this moment, looked to this moment. All the prophets had talked about this moment. Everyone looking forward to this moment, and Jesus comes. He lives a perfect life. He gives himself up to be arrested and to be mocked and eventually crucified for the sins of the world. He gives his life, was buried three days later, rises from the dead. Everything was fulfilled. It was the pivotal moment in all of history. This was it. This was the pivotal moment. And after Jesus accomplishes this, he ascends into heaven and he leaves his mission and his message to his disciples. And they began to plant churches centered on the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. That he was crucified, that he was resurrection, resurrected. They protected the church against errors and against false doctrines. They defended the truth in these churches. They built churches on the truths of Jesus' teaching and they gave themselves to lead the church. And the church, and the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ spread all over the known world. Truly amazing. And not only do we read it here in our scriptures, but we read it in history books. It is incredible as the church spread. And as we touched on last week, this left Peter with a huge concern. His concern was his secession plan. I want us to look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. This is a reference. Back to the, what we looked at last week where Peter was encouraging us to grow in our faith and he says, supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly, affection, and love, right? He's encouraging us to supplement our faith with these things and Peter says, I remind you of these things, these simple things, things you already know about, but I remind them to you because in verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, To stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Do you hear it? The secession plan. I know my time is short. Peter knows he's about to die. As we looked at briefly last week, Peter writes this letter at the end of his life. Peter is either in prison or about to be. It's very clear that Peter knows that his time is short. He knows that the emperor Nero was relentless, and it was only a matter of time. Peter knows this, and it's not just Peter. It's all of the disciples and apostles. He looks around at the state of the church, what has happened, what has been going on, and he is concerned about guarding it, in, Think about this this way. The apostles were the guards of the teachings of Christ in the church. They were the leaders of this movement. The apostles of Christ are now either gone or they're about to be. And so what now? Well, this is the secession plan. Remember, the secession plan is the process for identifying and developing new leaders who can replace old leaders when they leave, retire, or in Peter's case, die. And that's exactly what is on Peter's mind here. I want you to listen to verse 15 with me. I will make every effort, Peter says, so that after my departure, after my departure, after I'm gone, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter's deeply concerned about what is going to happen next here in this movement throughout the churches, what's going to happen when the apostles are gone. And this is why our text today is so important. Where is truth and authority found after the apostles are gone? And that's what we're going to see in this text. And I I want to draw our reminder to one more thing before we dive in deeper. Do you remember who the intended audience of this letter is? See, in most epistles, it's written to one specific church and one specific time and one specific place. And Most of the epistles, like 1 Corinthians that we just walked through, is is written to the church at Corinth, for example, but not this letter. See, Peter wrote this letter not to one specific church, but to the church at large, to the church broadly, to the church universally. And he wrote this letter to the church broadly from the time he wrote it to the time Jesus returns. That's the church he had in mind. And so we said this a different way. You and I are the intended audience of this letter. He was thinking about us in this time, protecting us in this time until Jesus comes back. We are the intended audience of this letter, and we're gonna be able to see that this is so easy for us to apply. So listen what Peter says next in this, in this text. Uh, verse 16. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna read this thing straight through, talk a little bit, Read it straight through again, all right? So hang with me. Here we go. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, it's never about us. It's never us. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It was, it is all about Jesus. They saw him, they were there, they were eyewitnesses to him. And then it continues, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here in Peter's secession plan to us, Peter is concerned about truth and authority after he's gone. Let me just say a couple things this morning, um, just so that we're able to see this a bit more clearly. There are several authorities that we have in our lives for ultimate truth, every one of us. There are several ways that we determine what is true and what is ultimately true. In fact, uh, John Wesley, prominent theologian of the 18th century, he did really well to identify four, and they are as true then as they were true in Peter's time, and they're as true then as they are now. Um, And we're going to be able to see each of them in our text. Um, Wesley says that ultimate authority and truth have four primary sources. Reason, experience, tradition, and scripture. Reason, experience, tradition, and scripture. Let me walk through these and and hopefully it will come together. The first one is reason. This deals with our ability to think through, to reason through things. Uh, to think about things in a way that's logical and makes sense and appeals to our intellect. We appeal to reason all the time. We should. Um, we have very hard time believing things that make no sense. You were created that way. This is reason. Um, appealing to reason helps us to guard from foolishness, first and foremost, um, but we appeal to this all the time. And by the way, we believe the Christian faith to be a reasonable faith. Absolutely. That faith in Christ is a reasonable faith. There has been much work done, for example, in apologetics that, that shows the way that, the, that, that Christianity is a reasonable faith. We have books like Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Fantastic book. Uh, we could go classic and think of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, another great book. We can think of a more modern, books like A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. All good, showing that the truth claims of Scripture are reasonable and rooted in reason. In other words, to believe Scripture is not an abandonment of what makes sense to our logic and reason. As some might suggest, no, Scripture illuminates and anchors our reason to truth. That's reason. Let me move to experience. This deal, deals with, our, with the way that we're able to assess truth by what we experience. Through our senses, what we feel, taste, hear, we're able to experience what is true. See, whereas reason is our head, experience is our heart. It's that what we feel. And we appeal to experience all the time in our lives, we go with our gut. This is experience. We act or believe because of the feeling that we have, because it feels right. This is experience. We believe things to be true because we have experienced them. This is experience. And just to be clear, again, Christianity, our walk with Jesus, the gospel is very experiential. We experience Christ. We don't only know about Christ. Christ. We know Christ. We experience him. We taste and We see the goodness of, of Jesus, the goodness of Christ. This is, our faith is experiential. In fact, John Wesley, when he was putting forth these four, he says, apart from scripture, experience is the strongest proof of Christianity. See, we see the truth of this all the time in our gospel presentations. When we share the gospel with people that we love in our life, our neighbors, friends, coworkers, we'll say, thing like, say things like, let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Let me tell you how Jesus has changed me because our faith is deeply personal. It's deeply felt. I remember when I was a kid, maybe some of you were told this as well, I remember being told several times that whenever you share your personal testimony, uh, you need to share your experience because no one can argue with that. I remember being told that, and, and I, I get it. I don't subscribe to that fully anymore, but I, I, I get it because our faith is felt, our faith is experienced, and this is, this is experience. The next is Tradition. Tradition appeals to history. What has been passed down and stood the test of time? I don't know if you have noticed, but wow, have, has our culture changed and shifted through time. Um, culture is fickle. Fads come and go. Our world changes so quickly. I would love to have time to do an experiment with you. I would love us to watch some kind of sitcom today, compare it to one from the early 90s, Compare it to one from the early 80s. And then for kicks, grab one from the 50s. And I would just love to see. Here's what we're going to see here. We are going to see some changes. We're gonna see how things have shifted in the span of 50 years so quickly, how values change, how agendas change, how perceived truth changes. And I gotta ask, what do we do in a world that changes so rapidly, it can be so disorienting? Is there any wonder, any wonder that for so many of us, an appeal to what is ancient, what is true and what has stood the test of time, why we appeal to that as our greatest source of truth. It's like our culture, it's like we see it as as building houses on sand that's continually shifting. And for so many of us, we we long, we crave to think back to what is tradition, what is ancient to guard us. The truth that has stood the test of time. And I wanna be very clear here, the truth of our gospel, Christianity is rooted in tradition timeless truth. We see this when we come together and sing and, or speak together creeds. These are uh, creeds that the church has come together for thousands of years to say, we believe in God the Father, we believe in Christ the Son. When we do these things, we're rooting ourselves in something ancient, a truth that has stood the test of time. We see it every time we sing songs that were written before 2015. <laughs> I didn't expect to get a name in there. I love new songs by the way, but there's something beautiful about knowing that as our voices fill the room that we are joining the chorus of all those who have gone before us, proclaiming the same truth. Our faith is a, is rooted in tradition. We see this in communion. Think about this. When we approach these tables, we approach these tables just like Christians have done for thousands of years. We are rooted, rooted in tradition. In fact, we stand on the fact that our Savior's death, burial, and resurrection was witnessed, witnessed by people who have then passed it down and passed it down and passed it down. In other words we stand on the fact that our gospel is rooted in tradition. And so none of these, I need you to hear me, none of these reason, experience, tradition are evil. In fact, the Spirit works in and through all of them to bring us to faith in Christ. Our faith is a reasonable faith. Our faith is an experiential faith. Our faith is a faith deeply rooted in tradition. However... What is our ultimate source of authority? You now, for any Christian who went to Sunday school, when you saw the list of reason, experience, tradition, Scripture, um, I think for many of us, we're like, Scripture, boom, done, next question, right? It's, it's the obvious here, but not so fast, because we appeal, like I said, to all of these other things all the time, and they are not evil In fact, I've already shown you how our gospel appeals to all of them. We're about to read again how Peter appeals to all of them. But here's my question. What is our ultimate source of authority for the church? What is our ultimate source of authority? Our answer must be Scripture. That Scripture is true, that it is sufficient, that it is the truth of God, the very breath of God, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all Scripture is, I love this, Breathed out by God, breathed out, ultimate source of authority is and must be Scripture. Again, not just because of the Sunday school answer of saying, Jesus, Bible, right? But because Scripture is the first truth whereby all other truths must be measured and tested. Scripture is the first truth whereby all other truths must be measured and tested. Here's what I mean when I say this. There will inevitably come a time when your truths will be in conflict with each other. When authorities will be in conflict with each other. What do you do in those moments? Moments when you know something to be true in your head, but you feel something different in your heart. Moments when what you're experiencing just doesn't line up with history, and it seems to be a little at odds with Scripture. What do you do when what you know in your head doesn't line up with the tradition you hold? In other words... There is gonna come a time when your head is saying one thing, your heart is saying another thing. History is telling you to go this way while scripture is pointing you that way. What do you do when that happens? Has this ever happened? I would bet that so many of us have experienced this clash of truth, clash of authorities, and it can be so disorienting. I think of a student that I knew. I guess I still know. Um, Born, raised in a Christian home followed Jesus, uh, elementary, middle, high school, um, and then went to college and got his faith rocked to the core when he was bombarded with scientific reason that was presented to be in conflict with the faith that he held. And it was completely disorienting for him truths are, re- are colliding. Perceived truths are colliding. Let me rephrase that. Have you ever experienced something like this? I'll push the example a little further. Um, for so many of us today, we have begun only recently to wrestle with our faith through the movements of our current culture. As we see, for example, the LGBTQ movement and as it moves, we've seen Christian faith and orthodoxy now being at odds with what is popular and compatible with our contemporary culture. And for many, that has caused a truth-wrestling match. What is true? What is not? What happens when what we see in Scripture is not what we're feeling and not what we're thinking could think of a lot more examples. You probably could too. Moments when we have truth wars, truth wrestling matches of who is going to be the ultimate. And in these moments, what is our primary source of truth? Because I wanted to ask this question, because if you can't answer this question, the loudest voice will win. And as you can probably affirm in your life, In other areas of your life, the loudest voice is not always the right voice. What is our primary source of truth? What is the first truth whereby all other truths must be measured and tested? Our answer as followers of Christ is and must be, must always be scripture. The word of God that is true, that has been true, that will always be true. In other words, our reason Our reason, what we think must be measured by this, assessed by this, brought into line with this. Our experience, what we feel, must be measured by this, assessed by this, brought into line with this. Our tradition, what we have always said and always done, must be assessed by this measured by this, brought into line with this. Scripture is our highest truth, and this is why it is so important, church, that we are in this. If there's one thing that you're never gonna, you're never gonna regret this, it's spending more time in this. You're never going to get done and say, man, I shouldn't have done that. So that all other things... Your reason, your experience, the traditions that you have, all of the things will be molded and shaped by the truth that we have in God's Word. This is why we hold this up at Stone Oak Bible. This is why we preach the way we do. This is why we're committed to discipleship the way we are, because Scripture is our high truth. Let me put it like this. Reason tells us to trust our head. Experience tells us to trust our heart. Tradition tells us to trust history. And scripture tells us to trust our God who works through our head, our heart, and history. So that all of our thoughts, experiences, all of our traditions are brought into light with this and that this can bear on it all. Wesley says it, that is scripture, was delivered by authors who were divinely inspired. It is a rule sufficient of itself. It is neither needs nor is capable of any further addition. So now let's come back to our text. Uh, Let's come back to our text, and I want you to look back on this with me. Uh, 1 Peter, start at 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't devise clever lies, clever myths to trick you. No, instead, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I want you to notice the appeal to, to, uh, to tradition. They were eyewitnesses. They were passing down what they saw and what they experienced. Do you see that? Appeal to tradition. Now, continue. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18. We ourselves Heard this voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you notice here the appeal to experience? We heard this, we were there, we experienced this because we were with him. And then in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Notice here, lastly, the appeal to reason that we have what has been told to us. The the prophet's words are now fully confirmed, confirmed, appealing to all of the prophet's words that have been fulfilled because Christ confirmed them. This is a reasonable faith and truth. And because of this, because of this, you would do well to pay attention to. I love Peter's words there. And so listen to this. So consider your reasonable faith, the fact that Christ came fulfilling all prophecy, making faith reasonable. Consider the tradition, the fact that eyewitnesses have passed down what they saw and what they experienced. They were really there seeing and hearing, passing down timeless truth. And then consider our experiences and your experiences. The fact that you experience God, hear him speak. But more than all of those things, let's finish our text. Verse 20. Knowing this first of all. Above all, first of all, first among the other things. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture... Comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you hear what Peter's doing here? He's giving us his secession plan. I'm not going to be here for longer. Here's what I am setting up to continue this process after I am gone. For the church, for the movement of Christ. From that time to the moment Jesus returns, Peter's secession plan was the word of God. And he says that not one word, not one prophecy of scripture comes from man, comes from the will of man, comes from man trying to interpret things. Not one word. No, all scripture is from human authors who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Second Timothy says, as we've already read, all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed God's very breath and truth inspired by God himself. Peter's secession plan was to draw all of us, all Christians from that moment to the moment Jesus returns to the word of God. So are we drawn to this? Here, Peter just encourages us with this truth that all scripture is true. All of it is inspired and trustworthy. God has spoken. His words are here and they can be trusted fully and completely in a world of competing ideas. I need you to hear me. In a world of competing truths and competing ideas, competing experiences, competing traditions, in a postmodern world where everything is relative to whoever you are and however you feel in that moment, It can be so disorienting and confusing. And Peter's words hit us in this like a breath of fresh air. That God's truth is timeless, it is unchanging, it's found in his word. And we can rely on this when when fads come and go. That's good news. That is good news. And so are we hungry for this? Since that is true, are we hungry for this. Many of us, I believe, might be hungry for this in principle more than in practice. What I mean by that is some of us might view this kind of like broccoli where um, we know it's good for you. And it's not that we don't like it. It's fine. Man, I'm just not in the mood for it right now. And so we know we need it, but we rarely eat it. Oh, what joy it is when we as god 's people begin to see this as the best meal we 've ever had, where it 's not drudgery it 's joy, and you may hear that and think okay that 's nice, but I live in the real world i i live in the real world. My life is crazy and I just don't see myself as the guy who geeks out over scripture. That's just not who I see myself being in this life. And we get this kind of thing that, that what I'm talking about, the love for scripture is reserved for some elite Christian or, man, it's for those uh, professional Christians. I want you to hear me. This is an open invitation for you and for me to know God more through his word. That's it. And I, I, I have a challenge for us, and, and then I'll, I'll wrap up. I have a challenge for you this week. Um, since Peter gives us this secession plan, since he lays this out and his plan is first and foremost <clears throat> scripture, my prayer is for us to grow in our hunger and love for God's word. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible deals exclusively with this Um, growing in our love for scripture and our love of God's word and it just so happens it's the longest chapter in all of scripture Um, I'm talking about Psalm 119 Psalm 119 is a beast it is long it is um, 176 verses that's long. And it's divided up, though, for us into 22 sections that are roughly the same size. So here's my challenge. I would like for to challenge you to pick a section a day. It does not matter which one. They are all very good. Pick a section. Most sectioners are about eight verses. Uh, they're broken up pretty evenly, and I, I want to, you to pick a section, read it, pray it, write it down if that helps, but pray it over your life. and here's why, because each of these incredible sections in this in this psalm is about the Word of God. What well, you're going to, as you pick your section, you're going to see words like law of God, commands, precepts. Testimonies of God, ways of God, His statutes, His righteous rules, the Word of God. You're going to see all these, and anytime you see any of those words, they're all talking about the same thing. They're talking about the Word of God, they're talking about Scripture. And so as we pray this, as we meditate on this Scripture together, my prayer is that this will stir our heart and stir our affection for God in His Word, knowing Him in His Word. So here's how I'd like to finish our time together today. Um, I would like to, to finish by just praying the first stanza. Like I said, I could have picked any of them, but you got to start somewhere. So I'll start right at the beginning. And I'd love to just pray this over us as a church. As we close our time together, I want us to pray that this is truth in our hearts and in our lives. So I want to invite you, would you bow your head with me? Would you close your eyes and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are good. And you have spoken to us, you've given us your word, so that we may know you more, so we may follow you better, that we may know Christ and hope we have in him. So this morning we want to pray your word over our lives from Psalm 119. We are as we are blessed as we walk with you blameless, Lord. Blessed to walk in the law of the Lord, your word. We are blessed to keep your testimonies, your word. We are blessed to seek you with our whole heart. We are blessed when we do no wrong. Instead, walk in your ways. You have commanded your precepts, your word, to be kept, kept diligently. Oh, that our ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, your word, Lord then we know that we will not be put to shame. We fix our eyes on all of your commandments, on your word today, this morning, Lord. And we will praise you with upright hearts as we learn your righteous rules, your word. We will keep your statutes. We will follow your word. Do not utterly forsake us. Instead, Lord, would you help us today? In Jesus' name, amen.